Listen as Dr. Dan Hart from Barts and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry in London and Declan Noon from the European Hemophilia Consortium discuss patient perspectives for hemophilia and gene therapy. This podcast is part of a comprehensive educational resource designed by leading experts for the global hemophilia community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in gene therapy and hemophilia. Visit www.genetherapy.ist.org for more information. Declan, thanks so much for joining this ISTH Gene Therapy podcast. Um, it's, it's a real great pleasure to have a time really to explore kind of patient perspectives around gene therapy. Um, and really, if, if I kind of kick off and, and ask, as data is emerging from pivotal trials for both haemophilia A and haemophilia B, how would you summarize the feeling in the patient community about gene therapy emerging into the, the kind of service uh, kind of provision rather than just trials? Yeah, so thanks for the invite, Dan. Uh, really appreciate being here. I think the biggest aspect is patients are, are excited about this type of new concept of therapies. The bar really has been raised over the last few years, and we're expecting like a further jump within the gene therapy space. Obviously, there's a bit more comparability that we need to look at as to you know, what sort of levels are we expecting, what sort of responses do we require, how long will it last. Overall, very excited, but Lots of questions, as we'll get into uh, during the talk. So we're taking that early then in terms of managing expectation. I suppose there's, I mean, it's a curious time, isn't it, that I suppose some of the early phase studies, particularly on the A side, that we had normalization of levels, um, albeit that not necessarily durable in contrast to haemophilia B that possibly hasn't, in, in, in many studies, has been maybe slightly lower expression, but seemingly more durable. Let's take haemophilia A first of all. In terms of that variability of both expression between individuals and then potentially durability issues over time, do you think doctors are worrying more about that and scientists worrying about that more at a purist level than the patients who might be receiving it? Or, I mean, how is that being perceived in the community? Uh, yeah, so, th- so this is one of the times that, you know, I-, I like statistics, I like the numbers, I love a good mean, a good median. But in terms of gene therapy, I think we need to get a little bit more comfortable with the ranges and understanding of the explanations for the ranges, because yes, the patient, uh, the person in front of you may have a median chance of getting to X percent, but we have nothing to indicate whether or not they will get that response, whether they'll get a a no response or whether they will get like a a low 20s or up into the, the hundreds in terms of response. So I think the conversation is as long as I'm happy with the range, rather than this is the median, this is what you can broadly expect. I think that's the most interesting part of the conversation that we really need to get across to people. Because with our old therapies, we aim on a one shot, and then we have time to fiddle. Whereas this one, you just have to be comfortable with the range. Yeah. And and I suppose that range remains quite broad. I mean, do, do you think there's an expectation that the science world and, and the biotech world finds markers of prediction or, or to tighten up those ranges? Uh, or, you know, uh, do you think there's early adopters that, you know, will accept that there is a degree of uncertainty and, and proceed anyway? Uh, I do. I really think, you know, we always have the early adopters, we have the non-adopters, and we have then the, the late cycle uh, adopters. And what the early adopters tend to have is a bit more acceptance of that 
risk range. I think conversations that we've seen in, say, some of the gene therapy, the factor nine gene therapy trials, where, where they're like the neutralizing antibody is, you know, capping out at a certain level and you're not going to get possibly the full range. That aspect is becoming important in the conversation. And I think for patients, it is an important aspect because I would like to be able to narrow down what my uh, expectation of a therapy like this is so I can compare to what I have or what I could have if I went with another gene therapy in the future or uh, with a different therapy that is in clinical trials. Yeah. So, so that's a really good segue then into, I suppose, pathway of, of kind of counselling and I, I suppose almost whether, I mean, clearly there's a kind of a long conversation arguably over a number of consultations to get to a point of, of final consent. I mean, do, do you think there should be an almost an expectation of second opinions um, and also other alternatives that might be down the line that are non-gene therapy based? I think we're getting into the first era where we really, really have a very strong conversation on shared decision making. This is a conversation with multiple different parties, with multiple different people within the multidisciplinary team, because, you know, it may not be an informed decision with just a clinician and maybe with um, a nurse who is, who you have um, better connections with in the centre. But I, I think that informed decision shared decision-making approach is going to become incredibly important. You know, I think we'll probably talk about hub-and-spoke type models uh, in the delivery of care a little bit later. But one of the things that I really like about that aspect is because my relationship is with my centre. And then if I switch to a hub, then my relationship with them is slightly different. Uh, I can ask more questions. I expect more informed answers. And then it's how we collaborate across the centres. But I do th- I do think the, the, the informed consent, almost trying to talk me out of it, yep. is a really important part of making sure that, I've, that, this, that I'm comfortable with my decision. Yeah. And I think many have experienced that maybe those that have participated in trials as, as participants and, and on the clinical side in trials, very mindful of those those conversations and, and translating that into service will be, be key, won't it? And I suppose in thinking about other aspects that we need to be really mindful of, I suppose uh, other aspects of that conversation, liver health, bone health, psychology, um, I mean, are they priorities that you would see the the almost an expectation from the patient community of, you know, wh- where's my liver opinion pre pre gene therapy? Where's my my bone health opinion? Is that something that's and the conversation about immunosuppression and implications for bone health, for example? Yeah, I I think that this aspect is the bit that we haven't really talked about in gene therapy um, quite enough. So in terms of the um, liver health and, and hepatotoxicity around how long will I have steroids? Will I need steroids? What that looks like? Um, is there an impact on my day to day life? Is there an impact on the duration that I have to go? We've seen some of the public conversations where people have had to take the immunosuppressants for a long period of time. And then during COVID, that causes quite significant disruption to your day-to-day life. So this is something that we do need to have a better conversation. We probably need to have the liver health conversation anyway. Um, you know, we're looking at a, an aging population with hep C and uh, HIV and or, um, you know, fatty liver. So we do need to be better for our liver health in general. But with gene therapy, we do need to start thinking about the aspects that might help prolong a duration of, of a response. But again, you know, we, do, we don't have that information just yet. So it'd be nice to see that come out in the next few years. 
And I suppose we're concentrating specifically in both our minds in this conversation, I suppose, really about AAV-based therapies. And maybe we can come on to briefly talk about non-AAV um, if we have time. But given that at the outset, I suppose the mantra was this is a non-integrating platform. Do you think that has changed now that people now see it as an integrating platform that, that we, there's data from the canine models that actually it's intended to be non-integrating, but we know now there is a low level of, of integration. And in terms of that kind of cancer risk, albeit there's, there's been no data to date of concern, is that something we should be very explicit about in that counselling setup of, of the, the, that spectre of, of it going so badly wrong that cancer is the, is the sequelae? Yeah, I, I think this is a, this is probably one of the most difficult parts of the conversation. So that short term response, you know, almost like a, a within the first year or first two years, you know, I think we've seen from some of the data saying that the integration is no different within a, a cancer tumor than without, and that gives a level of comfort. But then it's the long term risk where we just don't have the data, and I think we have to be honest with people and have the conversation that you know you do accept um, a risk in the future but we just don't know what that risk is and, and again i think you're going to go back to the early adopters who will trade time now for possibly time in the future we just have to work um, very hard and making sure that they have the supports they need especially with the psychology as you mentioned the supports they need to uh, make the right decision for now and for that future and, and thinking about that psychology, just reflecting on, you know, conversation, I suppose, with your health economist hat on, um, maybe if we first of all then think about reimbursement models as how do you see this kind of coming to market in, in place like Ireland, UK, Germany, or, or, or I mean, clearly there, there will be presumably regional differences. But I mean, broadly, if you had to, you know, give us a feel of what you think is going to work for providers how is it going to work for such a high cost intervention so i think that the you know, ehc and he had put forward the paper on hub and spoke models and i think that has benefits from a patient perspective the patients from a clinical perspective uh, in terms of you know planning out where we need to go but it's also incredibly important from a contracting perspective because the patients are going there and they're seeing clinicians on a regular basis i do think we we may need to figure out ways to maintain engagement in the long term it's very possible it's, it can be highly structured you know for example my uh, my treatment comes every month surely instead of delivering my treatment they could collect my blood and it wouldn't come out of my day same time as my previous treatment and therefore i maintain that that contact on on a long-term basis so those are the type of clever bits that we we need to start thinking about in terms of contracting the room patient side and and thinking then about the psychology of of a high cost intervention as a one-off that may have quite a substantial price tag do you think that brings with it an, maybe an unwanted expectation of an individual re- receiving that either as an individual or, or perception within the community um you know, is that something that we need to just be mindful of of, of you know people saying the, the million pound patient for example does that bring with it unwarranted scrutiny and expectation um so you know in hemophilia that scrutiny and expectation has always been there historically it was one of it was a very high cost condition and it has come down uh over the years uh so patients are very conscious of making sure that they engage with a service in a way that they get the best treatment for themselves i think 
possibly the slight difference here is that we have pretty good engagement with the centers. We do have to go for long-term follow-up anyway, and we just have to figure out a way of working that in. I, I, I really don't think that, that patients should think about economics. There's, there's patient organizations, there's clinicians, there's, cent- there's hospitals, there's uh, policy people that get into that to make it practical. We just have to make it practical for delivering that level of care that we would expect at um, whatever the therapy was on. Reflecting on that, that that actually once approved within a given healthcare system, that actually, yeah, we shouldn't burden a patient or family with that that decision because it's been approved within that health system, hasn't it? And and, and there's complex economics behind the scenes that will be smoothing that cost out for that given system over quite a, a period of time and some, someone's done that maths and modeling so someone like you as a health economist um <laughs> and then we just get on and make the clinical decisions with with the patient and, and i think the clinical decisions that you make in terms of monitoring can be worked into those sort of contracting and then it's up to the patient to say that you know this is something that i want or is something that i that i don't want because it gives me freedom to do x y and z um and that piece should be in the background but it's how we connect that in as patient organizations, as, as clinicians, to making sure that you get the right information for you to make a clinical decision. I get the right benefit out of the therapy for me as a, as a personal decision. And then the payers have oversight and awareness. Yeah. So that, that tripartite, everyone's a winner, would be a perfect spot to, to get to for haemophilia care, wouldn't it? Um, Listen, I, I think our time's up, actually, Declan. Do you know, th- thank you so much. That's a quick gander through a whole uh, various areas of gene therapy from a patient perspective. Um, really interesting to, to be able to catch up and talk about it. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Earn your CME credit by clicking the link for credit. Check back for more podcasts on gene therapy and hemophilia. Additional education is available on www.genetherapy.isth.org, an educational resource designed by leading experts for the global hemophilia community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in gene therapy and hemophilia.